to uh, this equipping class on systematic theology. Um, yeah, excited to have all of you here. In fact, my, so my brother, if you didn't hear, my brother and my sister-in-law are here as well. They're here from Clinton. And I called, they live three hours away, and I called them. I said, listen, there's, we're teaching this class. And there's this guy, John Henderson, who's taking everybody. Everybody's going to his class. Can you please drive up here and just so we can have some warm bodies in our class? And so they did, and so that's just that's the, the links that they're willing to go for us. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> okay, yeah, so this is, this is Systematic Theology 1. Uh, brand new class, brand new kind of group of, of equipping classes that uh, we're bringing to the church, and we're super excited about all of it uh, because it's going to kind of bring some some structure and a, and a process to our equipping classes, whereas in the past we've just kind of, we've done different topics here and there, but it was just a little bit more of a ad hoc kind of a thing. There were different classes going at different times. Well, now um, Stephen Martin and Cole Pinnock both have worked really hard in kind of building out a curriculum, if you will, of uh, four different tracks that you can get on, and each track is like two years' worth. And so this is one of those tracks. This is the theology track. And so um, in it, we're going to have Systematic Theology 1 this fall. Uh, we're going to have Systematic 2 in the spring. And then next year, we will do um, apologetics as well as biblical theology. Okay, so that'll kind of be the two-year track of this theology track. So you could kind of follow that all the way out. And then we also have a church history track um, that kind of goes all the, you know, covers all of church history um, over the two years. And then we've also got a, like a Christian living uh, track, and that's where the marriage class is today. Uh, and then what's the, what's the other track? Cliff, do you know what the other track is? It's Christian living, it's theology, it's church history, it's a Bible overview. That's the fourth one. So Old and New Te- Old Testament Survey one and two, and New Testament Survey one and two. Anyway, we're just we're excited about kind of this new curriculum that is you know it's it's intended to help equip you guys um, for the work of the ministry. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four. He says that that Christ has given pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body. Okay, so that's our aim in offering these courses uh, and in just taking the time to consider these things carefully um, so that as we grow in our knowledge of God together, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to deepen our love for Him, it's going to strengthen our faith, uh, it's going to fuel our worship and our obedience to Him. So that's, that's the goal with this class, it's the goal with all these classes and so, uh, you know, our hope is that as we go through these things, that we're going to be built up together, equipped for the work of the ministry and evangelism in our communities. Hey, there's handouts, guys, on that back table as you come in, if you want to grab those. Um, so, with that, just kind of as the 
as the prelude. Let me open us in prayer. We'll, we'll go ahead and jump into this. Lord, you say in uh, Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Lord, I just pray that that would uh, mark us as a church as we uh, think about these things, as we come to your word and and we think about even uh, just the doctrine of your word and understanding what it is to us, the authority that it has in our lives, the way it's uh, the, the means by which you've revealed yourself uh, to us. And uh, so I pray that we would just, uh, you would give us understanding, that you would give us clarity, uh, and that it would just uh, spark uh, devotion and love in our hearts as we consider these things together as a church. And we just lift it all up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to be, throughout this class, we're going to be doing some book giveaways. Um, And so if you notice on the back of your handout, we've got some some recommended books kind of on the topics that we're talking about. So one of the books that I have listed there today is Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. So, because today we're going to be getting into the doctrine of the Word of God and just kind of considering things like that, this is an excellent book that is, it's, it's relatively short, it's accessible, it's clear, it's really helpful in just covering why we can trust the Bible, okay? Why, how can we know with certainty that the Bible is everything that it claims to be, that it's reliable, um, that it was, you know, inspired, that it was copied, that it was transmitted, that it's been translated faithfully, all those kinds of things, that the Bible that we hold in our hands today is something that we can trust as the Word of God. Really helpful resource on this if somebody would like a copy of this. Why Trust the Bible? Greg Gilbert. I saw the first hand back here. There you go. No, <laughs> he was first. <laughs> you guys can fight that out. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, so let's get into systematic theology. Uh, and let's start with this question. What is systematic theology? So just out of curiosity, who here has read a systematic theology? Who studied systematic theology or read a systematic theology book? A few of you. What are some of the systematic theologies that you guys have read? Frank, what have you read? Yeah. Grudem, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you mentioned Grudem. Grudem is a, I, that's also listed here if you look, uh, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Uh, just classic. I, I think it's the best-selling systematic theology of all time. And the reason for that is because it just strikes a really perfect balance of uh, really um, thorough scholarship, but also really um, accessible and devotional. He's got a hymn at the end of each section. He's got some devotional thoughts and questions at the end of each section. So it's just like, it's something you can read in your quiet time in the morning, and it's, it really is devotional. Um, but it's, it's really comprehensive in terms of just covering all the, all the major areas in a really biblical and I would say um, a really helpful way. Um, so when we talk about systematic theology, I think I, I talked about this on last Sunday night when we were talking about this class, but I think just that word, just that phrase can kind of be a little intimidating and it sounds like this really academic kind of thing. And my encouragement on Sunday night, and my encouragement to you now is that it's not. It, it's it's it shouldn't be intimidating, and it's not. Oh, it doesn't have to be overly academic. Now it can be, but it doesn't have to be. And I would say there's nothing more practical than doing theology. Um, so what systematic theology means when we talk about systematic theology is just it's the orderly arrangement of the study of God into logical, topical divisions. <clears throat> okay, and another way to say that is this. Systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach about one particular subject? So that's, I mean, that's the long and the short of it. You're trying to understand, based on this particular topic, what does the whole Bible teach? And so, like, for example... Uh, what does the whole Bible teach about creation? So Cliff is going to teach on creation uh, here in a few weeks. And so in, in, in doing systematic theology as it relates to creation, it means we're just ga- going to gather up all the texts that deal with creation in the Bible, and then we're going to interpret those just within the broad storyline of Scripture, and then we're going to summarize those in, a, in hopefully a faithful and coherent way to just say, this is what the whole Bible teaches about creation. Um, so if, you, if you'll turn to the back of your handout, this uh, I'll just briefly walk you through the topics that we're going to be covering as we go through this class. So today, as I said, we're just doing a brief intro into systematic theology, and then we're talking about the doctrine of the word this week and next. Um, the following two weeks, Sam Connect is going to talk about the attributes of God, the character of God, all the things that God has revealed about himself as being true. Uh, and then, as I said, Cliff is going to talk about creation. He's going to talk about, then after that, he's going to be talking about the doctrine of man 
and the doctrine of sin. Oh, yeah, awesome. Look at this. My lovely wife has brought me a coffee. Thanks. That's a big cup. Do they have those down there today? Wow. The energy level on this lesson is about to go up like <laughs> 10 notches. Yeah. Um, okay, so Cliff is going to talk about creation and doctrine of man and of sin. And then uh, Sam Connect is going to come back and he's going to talk about for two weeks the providence of God. So he's going he's gonna to untangle all the knots that you have about God's providence, and he's going to clear up every mystery that exists about God's providence. And then the last four weeks, we'll be talking about the person and work of Christ. We'll spend four weeks just going really deep into who Christ is and what he accomplished for us. Okay? So that's, that's where we're going. Um. So then, so that's what systematic theology is. That's how we're going to go about this. That's the, that's the path that we're going down. So the next, the next point here on your outline is then why should we study systematic theology? Why should we study systematic theology? What do you think? You guys have thoughts about that? It does very in most basically it helps us learn more about God. And you can cheat a little bit too and look at your outline and you can see the first point there is that we study systematic theology for God's glory. We study it for God's glory. So, how can studying theology Bring God glory. What do you think? Mm. That's good. So it starts with knowledge. I mean, we want to grow in our knowledge of who God is. I mean... What's the first and great commandment? Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Well, the way that we grow to love him is that we grow in our knowledge of him, right? We get to know who he is. We get to know him better. And then, um, it also, our knowledge of him should lead to greater obedience, for him, don't you think? I mean, that's the goal, is that we don't just get puffed up with a bunch of knowledge about who he is, but we actually start to live it out in greater obedience to him, right? And then, as we obey him more, um, he's glorified when we do that, right? That's, that's what brings God glory, is when, when we obey him. Uh, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, Paul says, And I, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, 
so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, so there you kind of see this progression of we're growing in our knowledge of God that leads to greater obedience of Him, which brings Him glory. Which, yeah, what's the chief end of man? Yeah, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, so if we want to do what our number one priority in life is, which is to bring God glory, we've got to grow in our knowledge, which should spill over into greater obedience. Any questions on that? Okay, so number two, why study systematic theology? Well, so that we can corporately, meaning together as a church, reflect Christ to others. So as the body of Christ, we study theology so that the church can be an accurate reflection of God to the world. So if, if the church is disconnected from knowing God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, then whatever the church looks like to the world is not going to be what God wants it to be, right? Um, and I think in a time when the very concept of truth is called into question, I think the church more than ever needs to be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in us. 1 Peter 3.15. So studying theology is a way we can do this as a church. Um, Another way uh, or another reason for studying systematic theology is not just corporately but individually our, our own growth and sanctification. And that, that goes back to this. I mean, we're, we're growing in obedience as our knowledge grows. And so we don't want to just know about God as though he can just kind of be known from a distance. Um, but we actually want to know God personally. We want to have a relationship with him. And as we study theology, then that, that fuels that. I mean, truth fuels worship, Right? Another way to say that is theology fuels doxology. And, and so without theology, there's no fuel of the fire to our worship. And so lastly, um, why study systematic theology? Well, because doctrine matters. It really, really matters. Um, you know, being a disciple of Jesus goes beyond just making a one-time decision. You know, he said in John eight thirty one, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So we show that we're his disciples because we actually hold to correct doctrine about who he is. Um, we can't just make up what we think God is like or imagine he's going to approve what we do. Right? If we do this, then too often he's going to look like us. And we're going to be guilty of kind of forming a God in our own image rather than being image bearers of him. Um, 
And so I think it's just, that's just the temptation. It's the temptation of, of fallen humanity to just try to determine our theology just like a, a lunch buffet or a fantasy football team or whatever. You just kind of pick, you know, you just kind of pick and choose what you want. Um, but we just, we don't have that, we don't have that option available to us. We've got to understand the whole counsel of God, the way that he has revealed himself to us. Um, so, why do we study systematic theology? We do it for God's glory. We do it to corporately reflect Christ to others as a church. We do it for our individual growth and sanctification, and we do it because doctrine really matters. Any, um, any questions or thoughts on any of that? All right, let's keep moving. We'll, we'll look at some key features of systematic theology. So first of all, and this is really important to say, systematic theology has to be biblically grounded, okay? So systematic theology that's not biblical theology is not good. That's not good systematic theology. So just to come up with these systems of this and that, if it's not rooted and grounded in Scripture, then, you know, then it's going to, it's going to lead you astray. And so every, every worldview is going to appeal to a rule, it's going to appeal to a standard, or some final court of appeals when it comes to determining what is true. Um, and so for us, when it comes to matters of theological questions, the Bible is that rule. So, um, the teaching of this church is that the Bible alone is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. It's finally and it's fully authoritative for faith and life. And we're going to think more about some of that as we get into this lesson today. Um, but the main point here is that systematic theology has to be rooted and grounded in the Word. Okay, secondly, it's got to be historically informed. Historically informed. Okay? Um, and, and that's not to say that, that we look at history as authoritative, the way that we look at the Bible as authoritative, but we do look at history to inform and help us understand, okay, how has the church thought about these things over the course of history? Because that helps clarify, it helps bring perspective, it helps, you know, just bring some understanding to know that whatever issues that we're wrestling with and we're trying to understand, okay, what does the Bible actually say about this? Well, likely this is not a new thing. Likely this has been wrestled with for millennia. And so understanding how the church historically has wrestled with these things is going to be helpful to us. Um, I would say third, systematic theology needs to be contextualized. Needs to be contextualized. What does that mean? Conte is anybody familiar with the term contextualization? 
Yeah. That's right. We live in a context. Right. You got it. So we don't do systematic theology in a lab, right? We're not in some sterile lab where we're just coming up with these like ivory tower speculations um, that doesn't really relate to the real world and doesn't have an answer to the questions that people are actually dealing with, right? Um, I mean, just this, the questions that are around us right now. What does it mean to be male and female? Um, is there such a thing as truth? How do we define life? Um, these, are, these are all questions that the answers have real consequences for what we're dealing with. And so systematic theology speaks to those things. And so we, we want to we understand what we know about God and what we know about his truth and what we know about his word. We want to understand it in the real world that we're living in and be able to apply that rightly. Um, and then lastly, systematic theology should and must be lived out. It's got to be lived out. Okay, and this is, this is back to kind of what we were talking about here, the knowledge leading to obedience, leading to God's glory. You know, dead orthodoxy is not true orthodoxy. Okay, if you remember uh, what... what uh, Jesus said to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3. He's like, you've got a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So you need to wake up. Because they, they were being condemned for not living out the living word that they had received. Okay, so if you walk out of this class and your affections aren't stirred, your soul's not encouraged, your life is not changed then you're, you're not doing systematic theology the right way. Okay, so true theology is living theology. It should strengthen our faith and energize our Christian walk. Okay? Um, so that's it. We want to make sure that any systematic theology that we do is biblically grounded, historically informed, contextualized and lived out in our lives. Any questions, comments on that? Any of it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. So Cliff's question is, um, how do we avoid being like the church of Sardis? Um, how do we avoid letting theology become this academic, um, you know, just, uh, we're just trying to stimulate our intellectual curiosity versus it actually being lived out and it fueling our worship and fueling our devotion toward God. And I would say first and foremost, it's prayer. Like prayer, normally prayerlessness is what accompanies uh, dry, dead, cold theology. 
Okay, so if you're not on your knees and on your face before the Lord, confessing sin, recognizing your need for his mercy, recognizing just how your good works are filthy rags, coming back to the gospel, realizing that you're a sinner saved by grace, you brought nothing to the table, like all those kinds of things come through prayer. And I think that's, that's how God humbles us, how he crushes our pride, how he, how he makes all of this, this stuff that we learn about him, how he connects that then to our heart and through, into our life. So, um, yeah, that, that, would be, that would be the, to me, that's the key, um, is, is, is just your personal devotion cannot be sacrificed on the altar of learning and of study and of, you know, whatever it might be. Any other? Yeah, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, that's great. Yeah, really, really well said. Yes. Yeah. And if you're not reading the Word of God, then you, you don't have knowledge and you're not going to have any prayer um, because you're just disconnected. And I think that's a lot of times, you know, we, we alluded to uh, John 8 earlier. And in that context, those people believe on Jesus. Right. At the end of that, you don't believe anything. Yeah. The demons believe, right? Well, they, they shudder. Yeah. They're, they're bel- yeah, just, yeah. For the recording. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's good to it, it's good if we have the. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, now I see it is. Uh, yeah. So, uh, the point I was making was that uh, uh, to be disconnected from a regular intake of God's word will actually uh, hinder everything that we've been talking about. You don't have any prayer life. Uh, you don't really have any. Gr- uh, your knowledge is not grounded in God's word, and. Pastor Brad on last Sunday evening was just mentioning some statistics of how little, uh, comparatively speaking,
people were connected to the Word of God. I think this... Isn't that shocking? Yeah, it was yeah. like 20 or 30 percent read the Bible even once in a while, much yeah. less on any kind of a regular basis. Yeah. And so if you do such little uh, work reading of the <laughs> Word of God, it's no wonder there's no outworking to reflect that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. <laughs> well... So that, that's a great introduction and some great discussion on just doing theology and why it matters, okay? So let's move then into our first official topic of the class, which is the doctrine of the word. And I'm looking at the clock, and we got to get moving. <laughs> we got a buggy. Um, okay, so... This is where we're going to see why we believe that the Bible alone is our ultimate authority when it comes to the Christian faith, okay? And I think it's important to point out that when we talk about God's Word, we don't mean just the Bible, okay? God's Word or His speech is actually one of His attributes, okay? So He's a speaking God. He communicates. He reveals Himself to us, and He's done this in different ways throughout redemptive history. So let's talk about some of the different forms his word has taken. Okay? So what are the different forms of God's word that we see in Scripture? Just shout it out. Yep. Yep, God's speaking directly. So we see that we see that in a couple of different ways, right? In his speech, we see his decree, right? We see the decrees of God, um, and that's a word of God that causes something to happen. Genesis 1-3, let there be light. God said it, and it happened. <clears throat> Psalm 33-6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. So we also see it in personal address, right? He speaks directly to people. Um, so he, he sometimes in Scripture, we see him communicating with people on earth. We see him talking to Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, we see him giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. Even in the New Testament, at the baptism of Jesus, we see God spoke audibly and directly, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Okay? And then we also see God's speech. So this is him speaking directly. What about him speaking indirectly? How did he do that? Yeah, through the prophets. Exactly. So throughout Scripture, we, we see God raise up these prophets who are going to speak on his behalf to the people. So he told both Moses and Jeremiah that he was going to put his words in their mouth. And then he said, whatever I command you, you shall speak. And so God's word, even though it was spoken through human lips, were considered to be just as authoritative and just as true as God's other words, his words of when he spoke directly. So his indirect speech was considered just as authoritative and just as reliable as his direct speech. So when a true prophet of God said, thus says the Lord, 
then to disbelieve or disobey that word was to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Right? There's another way that we see God's word in Scripture aside from his written word. What's that? Yeah. The incarnate word, right? His word as a person. So John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Um, so God revealed himself to humanity in the person of Jesus who came to earth and lived and walked among his people. Okay, so uh, Grudem says it this way, Among the members of the Trinity, it is God the Son who in his person, as well as his words, has the role of communicating the character of God to us and of expressing the will of God for us. Okay, so Jesus came as a person and what we saw in him was what, that was a representation of who God the Father and who the entire Trinity are. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about this. <clears throat> why why do you think? Because what we're going to focus on is the authority of the Bible. We're going to be focusing on God's written word, even though these other forms of His word we see. And we know that those forms are just as true and just as reliable and just as authoritative. Why do you think we would focus on his written word? He's not here. We can't see him. We can't hear him. Do you have your microphone, Frank? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just, listen, have you ever listened to one of these things on the podcast and somebody starts talking and there's somebody like Frank out there making a tremendous point and you're listening and you're like, I have no idea what he said. <laughs> That's not working anymore? They're going to have to do some serious editing on this audio. Yeah, no, you, you, Frank said, Frank Hannon. Yeah, I just was saying that the incarnate word is no longer walking on this earth in a visible form. Yeah. And then the other thing is, unless you're of a certain particular uh, persuasion, uh, we don't necessarily believe that God directly speaks through prophets as he did back in that day. Yeah. So that leaves us with the written word of God. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, because the, the, the written word points us to the word made flesh. And it points us to God's direct communication and his indirect communication with the prophets. Um, but we're no, longer, we're, no, we're no longer able to see or hear those things or judge the veracity of those things, right? So when someone comes and speaks and claims to be a prophet of God, no way to verify that. Um, so, 
So in short, the Bible's all we have, and it's everything we know about the other forms of his word are because we have these things recorded in Scripture. And so it's even as you begin a theology class and you start to try to learn about God and study about God, well, you have to start with his word, which is why we're starting here. Because everything we know about God and everything we know about all of his other forms of his word are because we have this book that's been preserved and handed down to us. Okay? So then let's look at the authority of that word. Let's look at the Bible. Um, How do we know that the Bible is God's authoritative word to his people? Well, in short, and I'm going to move through this quickly, but in short, because we believe the Bible makes that claim about itself right? The Old Testament claims to be the Word of God, right? And then the New Testament then, and we've got, we got lots of examples of that, of where the New Testament recognizes the authority of the Old, right? Jesus, as well as the apostles, they're always pointing back to the Old Testament, and they're saying, God said this, you know, so, so the New Testament writers and Jesus himself recognize the Old Testament as being authoritative the same way the Old Testament claims about itself. And then the New Testament also recognizes its own authority to be on par with the Old Testament, right? So that the New Testament itself says, like in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter talking about Paul's writings says, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So so Peter is calling Paul's letters scripture. Okay, and we we see that other places too. And just the, the point is, the overall point is that the Old Testament and the New Testament attest to the scriptures as God's authoritative revelation to his people. Okay, it comes as a unified package, Old and New Testament, which means we don't get to just pick and choose the parts that we like. We can't just study the New Testament because the Old Testament's kind of, you know, there seems to be a lot of judgment, a lot of wrath, and it's just a lot of stuffy kind of old traditions that don't seem really that applicable. No, that's not what it is. It's all one unified whole that has been handed down to us as God's revelation. We can't do like Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson's about, you know about Thomas Jefferson, the Bible that he had? Yeah, so he literally, Thomas Jefferson literally took scissors and went through his Bible and cut out all the things he didn't like. All the things that basically had to do with miraculous events or you know, things of the resurrection and all the things that seemed supernatural that he was like, that's fairy tale stuff. I just like, you know, some of the teachings of Jesus are helpful, so I'll keep those. We can't do that. If it's God's word, we don't stand above it, determining what we will and will not accept, but we stand underneath it as those who humbly submit ourselves to it. Okay, so that's the authority of scripture. Any questions or comments on that? Mm. 
we're talking about confirmation, we mm-hmm. can't forget the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, that's good, and we're getting there. Yeah, we'll talk about that. But absolutely right. The Holy Spirit who bears testimony in our hearts that this is true, right? That all of this is true. Um, okay, so this brings us to the question of the canon. The canon. So if the Bible alone is the inspired and inerrant Word of God and is our final and full authority on all things, then what should our next question be? Which book? Yeah. What, what's included? You know, Which books are we to follow and, and guard with our lives? And which ones are maybe just helpful? And which ones are maybe just like, those are, we should just avoid those altogether because those are crazy. Um, and there, are, you know, there have, throughout history, there have been competing writings or books that have tried to be part of the canon that is not in our Bible. So how do we know that? How do we know that the ones, that the 66 books that we have are the right ones? So that's the, that's the question of canon. So when we're talking about the canon, we mean the list of books that are accepted by Christians as the God-breathed, inerrant, and authoritative Word of God. So this word canon, it actually comes from Greek, and it, it just means a rule or a standard. That's what, that's what the word canon means. Um, and it's... It's another common attack on the historical reliability of Scripture, especially the New Testament. The New Testament canon, it comes under all kinds of attacks from skeptics and critics and, you know, scholars. Um, Da Vinci Code, if you know the book by Dan Brown and the movie with Tom Hanks, it's that kind of thing. You know, that the New Testament canon was actually just... It was created by a conspiracy of powerful bishops in the 4th century, and they were conspiring to suppress a bunch of these other documents that should have gone in, that would have told us things about Jesus, but they didn't want them to know it, so they, you know, they were trying to keep those out. Um, the History Channel's full of this kind of stuff. Um, and, by the way, we have a whole equipping class on apologetics um, that will be part of this track that we were talking about. And we've, we've done it in the past. You can, go, you can go and download those and listen to it where we, we talk really in depth about all of this stuff. So if you guys are interested in, in looking at that, you can, you can go back and listen to those in the apologetics class where we uh, just talk about stuff dealing with the trustworthiness of Scripture, the transmission, translation, all of that. Um, but today we're just going to focus in on this question of what books belong in the Bible. So let's start with the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament is traditionally divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's how Jesus talked about them. Um, it's 39 books in our Old Testament. It's actually 22 books in the Hebrew Old Testament, just same content, same things, just they divide it differently. Minor prophets are one book. The five books of 
you know, first five books are all one book, things like that. Um, and even though these books were written in different places at different times, it, it just, a recognition grew in Judaism that all the books um, belonged together and that they constituted God's revelation to his people. Um, when we study these early Jewish sources and we look um, even at the New Testament itself, it's just the Old Testament canon was just, it was just a done deal by the time Jesus came on the scene. Um, there was some dispute about different books um, kind of in the intertestamental period, but by the time you get to the first century and the time of Jesus, it's just like there doesn't seem to be any question that these are the books because those are the ones that are quoted from, those are the ones that are referenced, those are the ones that Judaism as a whole recognized and accepted as being the word of God. Um, they did ha- they, the, the Jews had other books. Um, you've probably heard of the Apocrypha. Um, and there's even, you know, Catholic Bibles have the Apocrypha included in them but they just, they don't belong there. They were, they were never intended to be there. Um, those are seen as, as kind of helpful commentaries uh, on the Old Testament, uh, but they were, never, they were never widely regarded as being on par with the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, Kellen. I don't think it does, um, I, and I think that's why, so... So there's a different group of, of books, too. So there's the Apocrypha, and those are seen as helpful but not divinely inspired. And there's the, I, I may pronounce it wrong, Pseudepigrapha, the pseudepigraphical books. And those are ones that are spurious. Those are, they, they do contradict. They have teachings that are, go against what the Old Testament scriptures would teach. So that's a separate group that's kind of rejected, Whereas the Apocrypha is like, oh, that's, that's helpful. That's good stuff. But it's not the Word of God. Okay. Um, okay. Any questions on that Old Testament canon? The Old Testament canon is not really disputed. I mean, not seriously disputed. It's when you get to the New Testament canon where there's much more debate and criticism from skeptics. So many critics are going to say that the 27 books that make up our New Testament were just, like we said, they were just arbitrarily chosen by this group of people who happened to have the most political influence at the time. Uh, They'll point to the Council of Carthage in 397, and they'll say that's the date when the final decisions were made of what books belonged in the New Testament. So they, they just sat down and this group of people said, these books are in, these are out. Um, and then, you know, if there would have been other bishops that had been more influential, then they would have actually had just a whole different set of books. They would just tell a whole different story about Jesus. So then the question is, well, how were the books of the New Testament chosen? How were they chosen? What do you think? What do you think about that question? Why 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Frank is noting that the question itself, when you use that word chosen, it sounds like, you know, people just sat down and decided and made a list of these New Testament books. So right off the bat, we say the New Testament, the books of the New Testament weren't chosen at all, but they were recognized and received, okay? They were recognized and received by the church. Um, so although the skeptics would claim that no canon existed until some council or bishop decided on it in the 4th century, the evidence actually shows that Christians widely recognized the vast majority of what we have as our New Testament as authoritative no later than the end of the 2nd century, like the 100s. You know, this is, by that point, it was, there was pretty universal acceptance of what was actual divinely inspired scripture. There were a handful of them that were debated up until the 4th century, but by and large, the church knew which books had the authority of scripture by the end of the 2nd century. Um, and, and occasionally, someone would challenge that inherited set of books in one way or another, and Christians would have to deal with that. Um, but the fact remains that they just simply didn't talk about choosing or deciding, but only about receiving what had been handed down. Receiving what had been handed down. And so in this last section, that's what we're going to kind of talk about, is how that process actually took place. This reception and recognition of the New Testament canon. Um. So how do we know which books? How do we know which ones they are? Um, What's important to recognize, as Christians, we ultimately affirm that Scripture is self-authenticating. Okay, it's self-authenticating, which means that it affirms and testifies to its own truthfulness. So we can demonstrate its accuracy by looking at other historical sources. But at the end of the day, the Christian receives Scripture as the Word of God because the Holy Spirit, who inspired its writing, is testifying to the believer that it's true. And I think this is kind of the point you were making earlier. Um, Jesus, in John chapter 10, when, when he's speaking as the Good Shepherd, he says, the sheep follow me, for they know my voice. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In other words, when a Christian reads Scripture, they think, now this is what the Word of God sounds like. This has a different character and quality to it than any other book on the face of the earth. And it's the Spirit that gives us eyes to see it that way and to understand it that way. And so, when we're talking about what's in the canon, we have to say that up front, and even though you're going to get charged with, well, that's circular reasoning, to say, well, the Bible's the Word of God because the Spirit who wrote it tells me that it is the Word of God, but yet that's just the truth. I mean, it's just, that's just the facts and the reality of what separates somebody who looks at this and says that's the word of God 
and somebody who looks at that and goes, this is a bunch of fairy tales. Who would believe this? It's the Spirit opening blind eyes and quickening dead hearts to allow us to understand that. So that's first and foremost how we know that the Bible is true and how we know which books belong in the canon. Because when we read those, they're so different than... If you've ever read stuff from like Gnostic Gospels, um, it's just so different. It's just, you look at it and you think, how could anybody think that this is on par with the Gospel of John, you know? Um, And if you look on your handout also on the book recommendations, I put for deeper study, there's one, there's a book here called Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. Excellent resource to look at to wrestle through these, this issue of, of the canon. And I believe Kruger is the one who coined this term self-authenticating and kind of thought through that from John chapter 10. Um, and others have picked up on that, but I think, I think that came from him um, and he just, it's just, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a technical book, but it's, it's also very helpful if you want to really dig deeply into this issue of canon. Okay, so then beyond the fact that it's self-authenticating, we have these four criteria that the early church used to be able to know, to recognize and receive what books belong in the canon and what books don't. So we've got four criteria. What time are we supposed to be out of here, Jeremy? Uh, two minutes. Two minutes? Oh, wow. Okay. Maybe we'll skip the board. <laughs> yeah, I may have to. We'll just talk about it, okay? I like using the whiteboard. We hauled it all the way over here, but uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. So four criteria. First one, apostolicity. Apostolicity. Big word, simple meaning. Big word, simple meaning. It means that it was written by either an apostle of Jesus or a close companion of one of his apostles. And this was by far the most important criterion the early church used to identify and defend the canonicity of a particular book. It's just, the idea is simple. Not just anybody can write a book about Jesus and expect the church to recognize it as holy scripture. Okay? That level of authority was reserved for those whom Jesus himself had specifically appointed as apostles and for a select few close companions of those apostles. Okay, so did it come from the apostles? Second criterion, antiquity. Antiquity. In other words, how old is the book? How long ago was it written? It needed to date back to the first century in order to have been written by an apostle because by the end of the first century, they were all dead. Um, so this is, a, this is a criterion that it didn't necessarily assure canonicity, but a lack of it would definitely just exit out immediately. If it didn't come from the first century, it's out. And this is what, this is what eliminated so many later Gnostic gospels and other gospels is because they just, they, they weren't old. They came around in the second century. Um, 
The third criterion is orthodoxy, just meaning that it, it had to agree, the content of the book had to agree with the standard of truth that was passed down in the doctrinal tradition handed down by Jesus himself. It had to teach what Jesus taught. It couldn't conflict with what Jesus taught. And there's a lot more to say about that. But I'll just, the, the last criteria is universality. Universality meaning it was widespread and it was used by churches all around the known world. Okay, it couldn't just be a book that was just used in select regions or select groups of churches. It had to be universally accepted by churches everywhere. And the only books that meet those standards that we just went through are the 27 books that make up our New Testament. Okay, so and quickly, just a couple of implications of all of this. One is, I hope you can see the church didn't create the Bible, as Roman Catholicism teaches. Okay, it's the other way around. The Bible got its authority um, from God's Word, and it's that Word that brought life to the church. Okay, so the church was merely recognizing what God had already inspired. And second, the second implication is that the canon is closed, okay, with the passing of Christ and the apostles. Um, yeah, so at the end of the Old Testament prophetic era, um, in the same way that closed, but it anticipated uh, Christ and, you know, him coming to earth, so this is closing with the passing of Christ as we now await his return. Okay, so, so Old Testament prophecy indicated that there was more prophecy to come, but the New Testament does, doesn't give us any expectation of any further or future revelation. <clears throat> Paul said in Ephesians 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. New Testament and Old Testament. We don't need anything else. We shouldn't expect anything else. Um, so we can trust the word that we've received, and we should praise God for how he shined his light into our darkness and brought us this word that teaches us who he is, it teaches us how, who we are, and it teaches us how we can be right with him. So any, I'll, I'll close it there. Any last questions or comments before we close? I ran through some of this quickly, um, but, you know, if you, if you look on the back of your handout there, you'll see my email address is there as well as Cliff and Sam Connect. So if you guys have other questions, would like help getting pointed to other resources where you can do further study, please reach out to us. We'd love to answer any questions you have. Um, what, but before we close today, any other questions or comments about any of this? There's also some discussion questions there on the back, some questions for reflection that, you know, today, over lunch, on the way home from church, um, may be helpful to kind of reflect and talk through. 
Okay. Well, next week, we're going to continue our discussion on the doctrine of the word by talking about the qualities or attributes of Scripture. In other words, what makes the Bible distinctive and unique? That's what we're going to talk about next week. All right, let me close this in prayer.